It's a bit of a mixed bag. Sustainable futures. In my book, a sustainable business is a business that will be here this year, next year, and in 10, 20, or more years from now. It needs to manage change. Change in its environment. Change in its stakeholder expectations. Change in the market. Change in the supply chain. Change in the world. To manage change successfully, you first have to see it coming. Every week, the Sustainable Futures Show brings you news, facts and opinions about changes in the sustainable world. My aim is to bring you everything that's important and interesting to help you manage change. Hello, this is Anthony Day and the Sustainable Futures Show. Every Monday, I think, how am I going to fill another episode? Every Thursday, I'm asking, how am I going to get all this in? Well, what have I picked up since last week's episode? The Royal Academy of Engineering reports that time is rapidly running out for the UK to develop its energy policy and expresses a lot of scepticism about fracking. One of the junior ministers at the Department of Energy and Climate Change says she understands it all now. We have the draft agreement text for COP21, the International Climate Change Conference, coming up in Paris in December. The Oil and Gas Climate Initiative will be there to secure the best outcome. Problems for VW and vacuum cleaners and why it's time to stop Indonesia smoking. And breaking news on carbon, CO2 makes you dumb. Yes, following extended negotiations in Bonn, there is now a draft agreement for the Paris COP21 conference. I was going to say I've read it so you don't have to. Let's just say I've read some of it and you wouldn't want to. Apparently the original document ran to some 20 pages, then the G77 plus China, which is the group of developing countries, raised strong objections because they did not consider that their interests had been properly taken into account. The document was revised to 34 pages. The document I've been looking at covers 51 pages. It's described as a draft unedited agreement and it seems to cover every possible eventuality. Here's a brief quotation to give you an idea of what it's like. Article 2. Purpose. 1. The purpose of this agreement is to enhance the implementation of the Convention and to achieve its objective, as stated in its Article 2, in order to strengthen and support the global response to the urgent threat of climate change Parties shall agree to take urgent action and enhance cooperation so as to a. Hold the increase in the global average temperature below 2 degrees centigrade, below 1.5 degrees centigrade, well below 2 degrees centigrade, below 2 degrees centigrade or 1.5 degrees centigrade, below 1.5 degrees centigrade or 2 degrees centigrade, as far below 2 degrees centigrade as possible, above pre-industrial levels by ensuring deep cuts in global greenhouse net emissions. You see what I mean about covering every eventuality. It goes on to talk about peaking their net emissions by 2030, by 20 to be agreed, or as soon as possible, and 
rapid reductions of global greenhouse gas emissions thereafter to at least 40 to 70 or 70 to 95 percent below 2010 levels by 2050 and zero net greenhouse gas emissions in the period 2060 to 2080. Many of these words are in parenthesis followed by a whole string of alternatives. Each clause has six or more optional versions of the text. The whole document is highly complex and it will take many hours of negotiation to produce a final version. Inevitably, there are inconsistencies. For example, in some places, it suggests that the agreement will not come into force until ratification by an agreed number of countries is complete. And in any case, this is not to happen before the 1st of January 2020. On the other hand, there is provision for the ceremonial signing of the agreement in 2016 with immediate implementation. According to Deutsche Welle, the German international broadcaster, it's still a rocky road from Bonn to Paris. Matthias Zöderberg is chair of the ACT Alliance Climate Change Advisory Group, which works with development and relief in 140 countries around the world. He said, the bond meeting played an important part in coming up with a draft agreement everybody agrees they can use. However, he said it still contained too many technical disagreements and was not the type of document ministers would be able to work with when it comes to the decision-making segment of the Paris meeting. The chairperson of the Group of 77 Plus China, South African diplomat Nazifo Mexicata de Seco, expressed profound dissatisfaction with the progress of the meeting. She told journalists the issue of funding to help poor nations cope with climate change would be the defining issue at the Paris meeting. Whether Paris succeeds or not will be dependent on what we have as part of the core agreement on finance, she said. German environmental prize winner Moji Blatif was interviewed this week by Deutsche Welle and he remains optimistic. We are all hoping, he says, that we will agree in Paris on a binding protocol to succeed the Kyoto Protocol. However, we can anticipate already that this protocol won't be sufficient to meet the 2 degrees Celsius target on which scientists have agreed. If you extrapolate what's on the table so far, you would probably end up at 3.5 to 4 degrees of additional warming by 2100. We need to decarbonise the world economy by 2100. More than 90% of energy worldwide is produced by burning fossil fuels and we have to replace them by renewable energies, wind, solar, geothermal and others. That's interesting. Others say we must decarbonise by 2050 at the latest and start now. I don't believe we can solve this problem only by political action, he says. The majority of people must really want it and support it. They should also participate in developing small energy units which fit into individual structures. I'm quite positively surprised by young people and I must say I'm not afraid of the future. You can read the whole of this wide-ranging interview at dw.com. Professor Piers Forster was one of the lead authors of AR5, the IPCC report published towards the end of last year. He came to the University of York to explain how the final text was agreed. As an expert, his role was to tell the politicians what amendments could or could not be supported by the science. Experts like him will be much needed in Paris. 
Hear more about his work in the Sustainable Future Show episode dated the 10th of November 2014. Just go to susbiz.biz, that's S-U-S-B-I-Z dot B-I-Z, and search for IPCC. An announcement from the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. That's at oilandgasclimateinitiative.com. The chief executive officers of 10 of the world's largest oil and gas companies, which together provide almost a fifth of all oil and gas production and supply nearly 10% of the world's energy, today declared their collective support for an effective climate change agreement to be reached at next month's COP21. In their milestone declaration, the CEOs of the 10 companies that currently make up the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, BG Group, BP, ENI, Pemex, Reliance Industries, Repsol, Saudi Aramco, Shell, Statoil and Total, confirmed that they recognise the general ambition to limit global average temperature rise to 2 degrees centigrade and that the existing trend of the world's net global greenhouse gas emissions is not consistent with this ambition. We have to welcome their support. Though at first sight you might ask, do turkeys vote for Christmas? Or is this like putting the National Rifle Association in charge of health and safety? Go to oilandgasclimateinitiative.com and you'll find that the organisation is putting a lot of emphasis on carbon capture and storage, CCS. As mentioned in previous episodes, this technology has not yet been successfully implemented at a commercial scale. We must resist any pressure to delay emissions reductions while CCS is under development. A report this week from the Royal Academy of Engineering, raeng.org.uk. Here's the press release. <clears throat> Time is rapidly running out to make the crucial planning decisions and secure investment to keep the UK on track to deliver a reliable, affordable and decarbonised energy system to meet future emissions regulations enshrined in the 2008 Climate Change Act. Prepared for the Prime Minister's Council for Science and Technology, the report, entitled A Critical Time for UK Energy Policy, details the actions needed now to create a secure and affordable low-carbon energy system for 2030 and beyond. The following actions for government are identified as a matter of urgency. Enable local or regional whole system large-scale pilot projects to establish real-world examples of how the future system will work. Drive forward new capacity in the three main low-carbon electricity generating technologies nuclear, carbon capture and storage, and offshore wind. Develop policies to accelerate demand reduction, especially in domestic heating, and introduce smarter demand management. Clarify and stabilise market mechanisms and incentives in order to give industry the confidence to invest. I'll certainly support policies to accelerate demand reduction and stability to give industry the confidence to invest is long overdue. They go on. New technologies could become unexpectedly significant, such as solar PV, which has recently become much cheaper. But large-scale deployment of novel technologies would take decades and the system cannot be planned on promises and aspirations alone. 
Isn't carbon capture and storage a promise and aspiration? The Academy calls instead for a combination of loan technologies to be scaled up to unprecedented levels and integrated in smarter ways. The report notes that the addition of shale gas or tight oil, that's fracking to you and me, is unlikely to have a major impact on the evolution of the UK's energy system, as we already have secure and diverse supplies of hydrocarbons from multiple sources. Reading the report itself, this is what it says on that point. Assuming that the resources turn out to be economically viable, new developments take many years to reach full potential, and so it's unlikely that shale, gas or oil will have a significant impact on the UK energy system by 2030. This is particularly true given the level of public opposition to fracking that will probably delay development. Even then, the addition of shale, gas or oil is unlikely to have a major impact on the evolution of the UK's energy system. The UK already has secure and diverse supplies of hydrocarbons from multiple sources. Indigenous shale, gas or oil would simply become another piece of the global supply chain of a commodity whose use should, in the UK, be constrained by climate change regulation. It could have an impact on broader economic factors, such as balance of trade and tax revenues, and could also increase the security of primary fuel supplies, but it is not expected to substantially impact on the large-scale makeup of the UK energy system. In closing, the Royal Academy of Engineering comments that the hoped-for investment by Drax in the White Rose Carbon Capture and Storage Demonstrator has been withdrawn, and the UK has also dropped four places to 11th in EY's Renewable Energy Country Attractiveness Index. I wonder if George Osborne is reading this. The report is saying that the future depends on nuclear, carbon capture and storage and offshore wind. We know that no new nuclear will be generated before 2025. Carbon capture and storage is unproven and there is no date for when it might work. And according to the Academy, Fracking will be pretty insignificant and in any case won't be ready before 2030. Better get building those offshore wind farms, George. Volkswagen has disappeared from the front pages recently, but the Independent reports that the company could be prosecuted on a corporate manslaughter charge over rigged diesel emission tests. Some 55,000 people die from bad air quality in the UK each year, and the government faced questions from MPs over the number of deaths that could be attributed to the scandal. Transport Minister Robert Goodwill told the Environmental Audit Committee that a corporate manslaughter charge may be considered if legal advice suggests it could be successful. This week, another German company has been accused of a similar fraud. European regulations have recently outlawed vacuum cleaners with motors of more than 1,600 watts. James Dyson designer of the Dyson the vacuum cleaner, claims that Bosch and Siemens cleaners give misleading results in a laboratory situation. Models nominally rated at 750 watts actually use more than 1600 watts in a domestic environment. Bosch strongly denies this, and the two companies are going to law. Meanwhile, there are reports that the EU is planning to loosen its emissions regulations so that the cars which breached them will now comply. Good for the motor industry, but isn't public health more important?
Junior Energy and Climate Change Minister Andrea Ledsom has admitting asking whether climate change was real after she was appointed to the job. But Mrs Ledsom said she was now completely persuaded on the issue. She told the all-party parliamentary group on unconventional gas and oil, when I first came to this job, one of my two questions was, is climate change real? And the other was, is hydraulic fracturing safe? And on both of those questions, I am now completely persuaded. Has she really got to grips with the issues? If she thinks she understands climate change, then she'll know it's caused by carbon emissions. And if she understands fracking, she'll know that it's a process of producing natural gas, which is a fossil fuel, and produces carbon emissions in use. How can she then say that fracking is safe? And carbon emissions not only cause climate change, but apparently they also make you dumb. The Climate Progress website, thinkprogress.org, reports a study which found statistically significant and meaningful reductions in decision-making performance in test subjects as CO2 levels rose from a baseline of 600 parts per million to 1,000 parts per million and 2,500 parts per million. Of course, these levels are far in excess of the average 400 parts per million found in the atmosphere, but they are not untypical of levels found inside homes or offices. Harvard School of Public Health finds that carbon dioxide has a direct and negative impact on human cognition and decision-making. These impacts have been observed at CO2 levels that most Americans and their children are routinely exposed to today inside classrooms, offices, homes, planes and cars. Something to think about, preferably in the open air. Finally, in The Guardian this week, you may have seen a picture of a fisherman in Indonesia, silhouetted against a thick yellow background. Indonesian forest and agricultural fires are cloaking Southeast Asia in a yellow, acrid haze, which an environmental watchdog said is spewing more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere each day than the entire United States. We have so much to do to get climate change under control. And that's it for another week. I'm Anthony Day and that was the Sustainable Futures Show. Thanks for the feedback. Do keep it coming. Until next time.